Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us for Family Bible Studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we are in Matthew 7, and we're going to be talking about the narrow gate. There are 1,328 chapters in the Bible, at least the Catholic Bible. Protestant Bible has a few uh, less chapters, but of all those chapters in the Bible, Matthew 7 has got to be one of the most important. And why is that? Particularly for you, mom and dad. In our previous episode, I warned of a terminal condition that can develop in the lives of teens and young adults regarding their faith. And especially this affects young men if Christianity is presented in a watered-down fashion. In other words, skipping over passages of Scripture like Matthew chapter 7. It's hardcore teaching, no, no doubt about that. But if Christianity simply projects an image of being a psychological crutch for weak people, it drives young people away, especially young men. And as Jesus said, if, if you water it down, it becomes salt that has lost its taste. And then Jesus said it becomes good for nothing except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. So we're not going to skip over the narrow gate in Matthew chapter 7. Let's read. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just by way of personal testimony, the importance of this chapter, there are two passages in the New Testament that radically changed my life. The first was John chapter 8 and verse 12, where Jesus speaks about being the light of the world. That got me started, and that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. But after I got started, and I thought I was making great progress as a Christian, and in many ways I was, I guess, uh, but there was a second scripture that radically changed my then Christian life, and that was Matthew chapter 7. And let me just tell you what happened in my life, because what happened to me might help you, mom and dad, or youth leader, or catechist, or Catholic teacher. Uh, I had been engaging in serious Bible study for about four years, 
I had earned an undergraduate degree in theology. I learned Greek. I taught Bible studies to children, youth, and young adults, and engaged in all types of evangelism. I was in the process of teaching a Bible study to young adults, and I asked the following question. We were studying Matthew 7, and I said, who are the false prophets today? And I opened that question up to the group, and, you know, they mentioned the different cults and heterodox spinoffs and things like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Moonies. I don't even know if they're still around, but different groups like this. It went on for a little bit. And then after everybody seemed to uh, go through their list of, of false prophets today, I said, I have been a false prophet. And things got really quiet. You see, I was fresh from the Jesus movement in California, and I was properly taught the utter necessity of the grace of God in salvation. Bought it then, bought it now, forever will believe that. The grace of God is utterly important for salvation, but I mistakenly thought that the grace of eternal security somehow trumped the utter necessity of obeying what Jesus said. I fell into the either-or mentality rather than seeing, yes, the grace of God. Yes, we are in the shepherd's care. We are secure. But on the other hand, the shepherd fully and completely expects us to obey what he said. And so, what I was doing, unintentionally, but what I was doing was teaching others uh, that I was so excited about, having found Jesus and having countered the Jesus movement and getting a theology degree and everything else, I was basically teaching people that the way to heaven was wide and easy. All you have to do is profess your faith in Jesus and kind of agree to things that the Bible says, and you're on your way. You're good. You're good to go forever. And Catholics know that there's a little bit more to the story than that, but yet there are many, because Jesus says many in this verse, so I'll say many. There are many Catholics warming a pew for 60 minutes a week and then just go and live as they please hey, this isn't bad. The way is wide and easy. Just do your 60 minutes a week. Jesus taught the exact opposite. Let me repeat this. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Not a whole lot of people are saying this these days, but here it goes. There are tens of millions of unrepentant churchgoers that are going to end up in hell. Churchgoers. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 24. This is just a little further down the page from the narrow gate. Jesus says, and everyone who hears these words of mine. Well, you know, some atheistic professor that hasn't darkened the door of a, of a church for 40 or 50 years isn't a hearer of these words of mine. Who are they? 
Well, they're false disciples. They're false believers. They're false prophets. And what cuts it between the true and the false? What is the difference between the narrow and the broad and easy way? The first one isn't like, I become a militant atheist. No, the first one says, here's these words of mine acknowledges them, gives mental acknowledgement, maybe think they're they're just great. Uh, As Catholics, we stand up to listen to the words of the gospel and everything, and then just go out and live your life as though nothing happened, because you got your ticket to heaven as a Catholic or as an evangelical in a board and, again, eternal security setting. You just confess your faith in Christ, you're good to go for all eternity. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Not at all. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does them. And just so you know, in the original Greek language, that's a present active indicative. That means there's an ongoing sense. It doesn't mean that you did it once and done. It means you're living a life this way. So hearing his words and doing them regularly and continually as your way of life will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Good. And trouble's going to come, flood's going to come, winds are going to blow, and and my guess, this isn't a prophecy, but my guess the next decade's going to show plenty of floods, plenty of winds, plenty of catastrophes, perhaps wars or whatever else. But if your faith is based on hearing and continually doing, you are building your life on a rock. But, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What house? This is a professing Christian house. This isn't the agnostic and atheist house. This isn't the Satanist house. This isn't the communist house. These are those who are hearing, acknowledging, smiling, piously accepting the words of Jesus, and then ignoring them as they go live their life. There is eternal destruction for that. And I don't know any other way to present this because Jesus is clear as a bell. Trouble is we water it down, we tame Jesus, particularly when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes of Matthew 7. Well, it's just something to piously admire. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. No, it's not something to piously admire. It is something to do. And this isn't just an isolated thing in the Bible. In the epistle to James, James is Jesus's cousin, says the same thing. James 1 and verse 22, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. There is a deceit that literally infects millions of Christians, Protestant and Catholic, deceit. James says, like, to hear it not do it is like looking in a mirror and walking away and forget what you look like. You don't even recognize yourself. You don't even know who you are. You're being deceived, thinking on your way to heaven, and you're on your way to hell. 
Jesus expects to hear his words and to do them, okay? And in fact, and James even has a stronger one. It says in James 2.19, oh, you believe God's one, okay? You're orthodox. You confess the creed. Well, he says, even the demons believe. So how are you different, churchgoer, from a demon? If you go to church, you hear Jesus's words, you put them into practice, you're like a wise man that built your house on a rock. If you go to church and you hear the words of Jesus and you ignore them in your life, you're no different than how the demons believe. That's tough stuff. But Christianity has a certain toughness to it. You know, how did, how did this change in Matthew 7? I sound a little fired up. I am. Matthew 7, it was my um, <laughs> second come to Jesus moment. And I must say, as a result of teaching that Bible study and encountering a couple of uh, Protestant Ezekiels, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second, it really prepared me for being a Catholic. Because what I'm saying should be actually of no shock whatsoever to those who have heard the Catholic faith. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of the Catholic Church at our moment in history who may be well-intentioned, maybe not well-intentioned, I have no idea, but they think the best way to reach people in a culture that's going down the drain is to accommodate the faith to that culture. And I'm an expert in this, not because I'm smart or anything like that. It's just I've been a Protestant, and I've seen Protestants do this. I've seen the very church I grew up in when I had my conversion experience and got a little serious about Jesus. I didn't, didn't want anything to do with it because that salt had lost its taste. You can't kind of accommodate to culture and expect young people particularly— uh, men, especially, a weak faith makes weak men, and men don't like to be weaklings, have religious crutches. Uh, they want a Jesus that has everything he said, and he's compassionate and merciful and loving and forgiving, and that's exactly part of the gospel. But so is Matthew 7 about the narrow gate versus the broad way. Now, I need to explain what I mean by a Protestant Ezekiel, because there's Catholic Ezekiels too, and they're more precious than gold. It, it's my opinion, and this is a very hard thing to do, but it's my opinion that the prophet Ezekiel is the most radical guy in the whole Bible. Uh, it's a long book. I think it's 48 chapters. I like the prophets. You might think, oh boy, Steve is a fanatic. I don't know if you... To me, reading the prophets uh, once a year, or once every other year, it's like it's just like ding, or it's like an alarm clock going off in your spiritual life. And reading the prophet Ezekiel, it's not just like an alarm clock; it's just like an atomic bomb just went off next to your bed, and you have no idea what's going on in the Book of Revelation, for instance, because the church. The church, the early Catholic church, including the very city where the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, and the Blessed Virgin Mary were living right outside of town, was going down the tubes. And basically, John took Ezekiel's strategies to try to set off a nuclear bomb in the lives of Catholics who were going to sleep before the first century was over. 
This is incredibly important. So you think, okay, if they were losing it in the first century, what do we need in, <laughs> in our day? My goodness. And so an Ezekiel is somebody not harsh, not crazy. Now, the world may call him a fanatic or some nice, tame, scholarly religious writers might reject everything he says. But an Ezekiel is simply somebody who has a heart for God and wants to wake up God's people to the reality of Christianity as Jesus taught. And to me, just, uh, and I, you know, it's it's hard to pick one place out of the Bible better than others, but for me personally, Steve Wood, Matthew 7 is it. But who helped me see what Matthew 7 was talking about? Because I had all these voices telling me it's the broad way. It's easy. And there's a Catholic easy way. There's an evangelical easy way. And they're both lead to destruction. But the two men that did it for me, one was a Lutheran by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great man, became a martyr during World War II in Nazi Germany. And he wrote a fine book called The Cost of Discipleship. And then the second man was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a distinguished physician, a Royal Society of Physicians, and uh, outstanding in the medical field, and yet he felt a tug and a call to proclaim uh, Christ from the scriptures, and so he became a, uh, a preacher for 30 years, and a number of his books were put into print. I was reading his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not asking you to rush out and buy Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, because a good Catholic commentary. See, Catholics have had this. It's just the modern fuzziness and watering down stuff that is perhaps leading people to have a whole false view of what Christianity is. But let me just give you a couple of quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones, because this is the historic Catholic faith, and I'll dare say he has it when it comes to the tough teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes like this, the false prophet does not emphasize the absolute necessity of entering this straight gate, this narrow way. They reduce holiness into something that is easy. And this is exactly what I was taught to do and to gain lots of converts. Uh, the Protestants, and not all Protestants fall into this. I mean, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Dietrich Bonhoeffer are two examples. Um, it's called easy believism by those who are Protestants and recognize that this is a false gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on, and this is one to listen to very carefully today because this could apply to Catholics and Protestants. And for those who want cultural renewal, and it's not going to come via politics. Politics are important, but it's not going to come via politics. This is where the problem is eating America. Yeah, I'll quote. It seems more and more clear that the greatest enemies of the true Christian faith are not those who are right out in the world militantly persecuting Christianity or flagrantly ignoring its teaching, but rather those who have a false and spurious Christianity. 
We need to open our eyes again to the terrible danger of self-deception and self-delusion. Remember that self-deception? That's what James warned about. Being a hearer and not a doer is deception. You're literally thinking you're going to heaven and you're not. What worse deception can be on a human being? But he goes and makes it a positive statement. But to put it positively, what we look for in anybody who claims to be Christian is evidence of the Beatitudes. A true Christian must exemplify the Beatitudes. Let me try to bring this home, literally, to your home. And you know, um, I, I think a lot about family life I think a lot about raising children, even though my own children are now young adults. But to me, this is such a critical, central challenge that Christians are facing in our day. And so I'm I'm thinking, what is going to work, so to speak? And I know there, you know, a new book or a new this or a new that. Um, tends to be very expensive, is, is always presented as the latest cure and whatnot. But I dare say the Servant on the Mount has incredibly great potential. And when it comes to Matthew 7, to me, Jesus is just uh, reliving the fire And I'm not talking about the fire that consumes, but the fire that burns away the chaff in our lives. That's the, Jesus, like he's the prophet Ezekiel, is, is, is just getting rid of the chaff and the deceptions. I can remember one Sunday after my children who were then teens had gone to a statewide Catholic youth rally, and they were just hilariously laughing and laughing and laughing, recounting all the jokes and the funny things that were said and done at this retreat. And they went on and on. And then uh, when they were done, I simply asked, um, did you learn anything about Jesus or our faith? And they were silent. And then As parents, we sit and wonder, why are our children falling away from the faith? Jokes and funny skits and pizza and Pepsi, as wonderful as they are, do not make disciples of Jesus Christ. And in our day, you're either a disciple or you're going to wash out. And uh, the roads are diverting. And so we need to be careful. Presenting the teaching of Jesus with its all comfort, softness, cultural conformity, it will lead to apathy. I don't care. I don't care. And that will lead to lukewarmness and it'll lead to falling away. I'll tell you a true story, okay? This one, I I think I did halfway right. I had a youth ministry in Florida, and it was called the Carpenter Shop, believe it or not, 
I didn't have any devotion to St. Joseph at the time, but it was a good name. And uh, I was dealing primarily with high school, middle school, young people. Uh, 68 and 69 in my book, somebody flipped a switch in America. Maybe demons were unloosed or whatever. I don't know. Woodstock was in 69. And so in the 70s, I was engaged in a youth ministry when things were just going literally nuts. I would say well over 95 of my hospital visits to young people in the hospital were psychiatric wards, not physical, you know, things like broken bones. And uh, we taught things like Matthew 7, very straight, without apology, looking them right in the eye and tell them this is Jesus Christ. And if you expect to follow him, then follow his teaching and don't don't pretend, so to speak. And it was very interesting because at that time, uh, youth ministry, Christian youth ministry, Catholic and Protestant, was just tripping over themselves for cultural uh, accommodation. You know, like, we're trying to be hip or mod or this or that. And we just, just shot straight from the Scripture, from the Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew 7. And you know what happened? We had youth from two counties and 70 churches pouring into this youth ministry. This is what worked in the fallout of the Woodstock Revolution. And my advice to you, mom and dad, get your youth, your your children, your young adults to hear talks by Ezekiel's. Now, how do you find an Ezekiel? Well, they will most likely not have the most social media followers, and they will not receive the most likes on YouTubes because Ezekiel's are not winners of popularity contests, but they are like Matthew 7, verse 28. When Jesus got done teaching the Sermon on the Mount, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. If I was a parent of a 14, 16, 18-year-old today, and if I was living, say, right here in South Carolina, and I knew there was Ezekiel having some kind of youth retreat in Idaho, I would get in my car and take them. It's just that important. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 436 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.